Thank you, Dr. Mays and Becky. That was a beautiful piece of Christian rock, I must say. I like that. Well, you know, it was about a, a month ago that Pastor Adam gave me a call and said that he's going to be away and be in Australia. And so he said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about having you come and preach at PBC, but I, I'd like to meet you in my office first and, and ask you a few questions to make sure that you're up for the task. I said, okay. That, uh, I was a little nervous about that, but I, I met him in his office, and, and he said, Cam, I know that uh, you graduated from TMS just like I did, but I just want to ask you a few questions. I want to see, do you feel as though that you're pretty comfortable and you have a, a pretty good grasp of the Word of God? I said, well, I mean, I'm a work in progress like anybody else. I'm a student of his word. I graduated from TMS, and I was a pastor for a couple of years in Texas. So I guess I would answer that and say, yeah, pretty well. I said, okay, well, do you think that you know the Old Testament or the New Testament better? I thought about it for a moment. I said, well, we, we live in New Testament era, so I would say that I probably spend a little more time in the New Testament than the Old Testament. So I would have to say the New Testament. He says, okay, well, then let me give you a little quiz. He said, why don't you tell me everything you know about the prodigal son? So I thought for a moment and uh, came up with a response that went a little something like this. He said, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And he went down to Jericho by night, and, and he fell upon stony ground, and the thorns choked him half to death. But the next morning, Solomon and his wife Gomorrah came and carried him down to the ark of Moses, and they're taking care of him. But as he was going through the eastern gate of the ark, he caught his hair in the limb, and, and he hung there for 40 days and 40 nights, and, and he did hunger very much so that the ravens came and fed him. And then the next day, the three wise men came and carried him down to the boat dock, and, and he caught a ship to Nineveh. And when he got there, he found Delilah sitting on the wall. And he said, chunk her down, boys, chunk her down. And they said, well, well how many times shall we chunk her down? Seven times seven? He said, nay, 70 times Seven. So they chunked her down 490 times. And she burst open in their midst, and they picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. And then, and then I looked, and I said, and then the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And so, needless to say, I looked across the, the desk at Adam, and he's got this shocked look on his face. And there was a moment of, of silence and he kind of got a grin on his face, and he said, Son, you sure do know the Bible well. we got to get you up preaching at PBC. <laughs> now, now, don't throw stones at me. Obviously, you know that that did not take place. But, but I will say that I do take the Word of God very seriously. When I stand behind the pulpit, I know that every word that comes out of my mouth, I will be judged one day by my Heavenly Father did I get it right? So before we start today, let's go to the, the Lord in prayer and ask for blessing upon this sermon. Heavenly Father, we 
are your humble children. And we are so grateful to be gathered in your house today to study your word that you left behind for us to, to know you better, to live out lives for your glory. So we pray, Lord, that today these are not my words, these are your words, and we pray that you will use them in each and every one of our lives to grow us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we may rejoice in you, that we may bring glory and honor to your great name. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You know, there was an American evangelist named Tony Miano. And in the summer of 2013, he made a trek across the pond to England, and he attended Wimbledon. For any of you tennis fans, you know that that's one of the four big major tennis venues throughout the year. But he didn't go so he could watch tennis. He went because he knew there would be tens of thousands of people outside the stadiums that he could go and present the gospel. So that's exactly what he did. He was presenting the gospel faithfully until the police came and arrested him and said, you cannot be doing this. So Tony was above reproach, and he willingly submitted to the authorities, and he went to, to prison. And when he was in the jail cell, he started singing hymns. And, and he didn't do it loud and obnoxious so that uh, everybody was, what is he doing? Instead, it was just loud enough that everybody in the cells could hear him along with the guards. He was only there for about seven hours. They released him. Tony got on a plane, flew back to America, spent some time with his wife, and then he got on a plane to Canada where there was another big event that he knew there would be a tremendous opportunity to present the gospel, and he did it faithfully. So this, what happened to him in, in England didn't deter him from going to Canada to continue to faithfully present the gospel. And he said, looking back on that time, even though it was a short amount of time in jail, he said, I consider it all joy. I, I was able to be persecuted for my faith. So that, that's a joy and a privilege. And you know, that shouldn't surprise us as believers. The Bible lets us know that we will be persecuted for our faith. That's exactly why the Apostle Peter wrote his first epistle to the believers in Asia Minor. Because they were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. So as Peter was writing this epistle, he's also urging these believers there to live out godly lives as they look forward to the future hope that they have in Christ Jesus. So today we're just going to be studying a portion of God's word in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. So get there, put your finger there, and hold on because I'm not going to read it yet. I want to give a little bit of context to what's taking place here. You see, the context for this passage, as well as everything in 1 Peter, is the fact that these Christians are facing persecution for their faith. It wasn't just this abstract idea that it may happen to you in the future. It was happening to them right then. And so Peter, he's acknowledging the fact, hey guys, you're being persecuted, 
But through this persecution, I want to encourage you. And that encouragement came in the way of a, a biblical worldview among believers. You see, they weren't to rely on their own strength. Instead, they were to comprehend whose they were. They were children of the living God. And so they were to face their suffering and pain through that vantage point. Have you ever experienced persecution for your faith? And if you have, how did you respond? Did you consider it all joy as James told us to do in James 1-2? Or did you throw a pity party for yourself and, and somehow think that God turned his eye, his back on you. He never does. I remember a time about nine or ten years ago, I was with a friend of mine. Every Tuesday, we would go out into an open-air mall, and we would just present the gospel to anybody that would, would listen to us. And on one occasion, it was my turn to present the gospel, and, and we're talking to two gentlemen. One was attentive, and one didn't want to hear it. And so as we got into the gospel presentation, we started talking about sin and the need of repentance and a savior. I mean, this is lighting this guy up. He's pacing back and forth, back and forth, to the point where I, I've got him in the corner of my eye thinking at any moment, he's just going to throw a punch at me. And so i kind of leery, but I, I kept going. And sure enough, uh, about a moment later, he just throws this punch at me that would have knocked me to the ground but about an inch from impact, he stops. And he just had this look on his face and his eyes. It was just, he wanted to kill me, it feel, felt like. It was just with hatred. He said, that would have hurt. Oh, yeah, of course it would have hurt. So I just, I mean, obviously the, the conversation ended right there. I couldn't bring him to the full point of the, of the gospel. And so my friend and I, we calmly just, removed ourselves from that situation as this man continued to hurl insults and, and cuss at us as we walked away. I turned to my friend and I said, you know what? We're in a battle. Satan doesn't want us out here presenting the gospel. He, he knows that he can't take our salvation away, but he also knows that he doesn't want us to go and present the gospel to anybody else. So we just rejoiced. We didn't tuck our tails between our legs and, and run away and thinking, hey man, that's enough persecution for today. We just went on to another part of the mall and struck up conversations with people who would listen to us. See, as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised that we will be persecuted for our faith. Because the Lord Jesus Christ even said in the last portion of John 16, 33, in the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Isn't that amazing? Even though when we face times of persecution, we know that our great God is in control. He has overcome the world. Paul, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, I know we don't like to hear that. What? If I present the gospel, I may be persecuted? Yeah. And sometimes persecution, it may come in very small, kind of 
insignificant ways, and other times it's huge and overwhelming, and we think, how in the world? I don't ever want to go through that again. But the simple fact remains that we will be persecuted for our faith. But Christ has overcome the world. And we see these persecuted believers in Asia Minor. They're going through this pain and this struggle. So Peter, he writes this epistle to let them know, hey, I, I get it, guys. You're going through persecution. I've been persecuted also. But hope in the Lord. Remain firm. Stand in your faith in the gospel. Christ has overcome the world. So please follow along with me as I read the inerrant infallible word of God from our passage, 1 Peter 5, 6-11. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. What we find out is in this passage, Peter gives his readers four disciplines to stand firm in times of persecution. Four disciplines to stand firm in times of persecution. First discipline, humble yourself before God in times of persecution. It's back in verse 6. Look at it again. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. We see that, that first word there is therefore. And it's tying in the previous verse, verse 5, with our current verse in verse 6 to give further instructions of how Christians are to be humble. You see, humility, it means lowliness of mind. It means self-abasement. And it describes the attitude of, of an individual who willingly serves at any cost, even if it's the lowliest of tasks, not looking for a pat on the back, doesn't matter as long as God gets the glory, just wants to serve. And you know, maybe even more so than today, being humble, it was not a desired trait amongst the first century pagan world. You see, people, they viewed humility as a, as a characteristic of weakness, and one of being a coward, and really it only should be expressed in the involuntary submission of slaves. And in order to have a submissive attitude, you really do have to have a mind given toward humility. Because only a truly humble individual will submit. Look at the last portion of verse 5, right before our passage. It says, For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
You see, that verse right there alone, it should cause all of us as believers to, to be excited and to adopt the attitude of humility. Because pride, it, it says that, you know what? I'm not going to do it God's way. I'm going to do it my way. But on the other hand, we see that God blesses and he gives grace to humble people. And what Peter is saying there in that, in verse 5, he, he's basing that off of Proverbs 3.34, where it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what Peter is doing, he's, he's commanding his readers in verse 6 to humble themselves, which ultimately means that they need to be in submission. And they were to submit not only to avoid God's wrath, and also bring about his divine grace. But they were also to submit because the authority over all of the church is none other than the mighty hand of God. You know, it was God's hand that delivered Israel from Egypt. And uh, it was his hand that was behind his work in the New Testament. And we see in the New Testament, most of those his mighty hand it has been used with his signs and, and his wonders. And it can also be seen in his judgment, which would include the death of his son, Jesus Christ, which Peter probably epitomized as the model for suffering of all believers. Therefore, because of that fact, Peter's audience, what they were supposed to do was they were to see God at work behind their persecution, look, look beyond the persecution, knowing that God is at work in their life beyond that, and then they were to submit to God and his plans, allowing themselves to be brought low, knowing that at one day in the future, he would exalt them from their suffering. You know, a, a verse in Maltby Babcock's hymn, it's so beautiful because it points out the, this wonderful truth that God is in control no matter what we face. Listen to the verse that she wrote. It says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is is the ruler yet. Isn't that beautiful? God is the ruler yet. We don't get persecuted and somehow that day now he's no longer on the throne and he's turned his back towards us. No, he is the ruler yet. So when we do face persecution, which we will, we don't run the other way and keep our mouth shut and, and go along with the crowd because we want to be accepted by the world. No. We continue to be faithful ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And whoever will listen to us, we open our mouth boldly with love and tell them the truth of the gospel so that even if one more soul gets saved, praise God, we rejoice in that. And whether that phrase at the end of verse 6, the proper time, whether it's referring to, to God's second coming, Christ's second coming, or to another designated time in the future by God, it doesn't really matter. It shouldn't hinder us from grasping the fact that at some point in the future, 
God will exalt us from our persecution. See, that's a common theme in Scripture. It's that humiliation leads to exaltation. But we need to to be aware that, that God just doesn't humiliate someone so that he just laughs about it. No, he never does that. What he does that for is to to bring his children into submissive attitudes before him that they lay down their burdens upon him. They trust in him and say, God, I can't carry this, but you can. And I know one day you will exalt me in and with Christ. You know, Pastor John MacArthur says, if the foundational attitude for spiritual growth is submission... Humility is, then, the footing to which the foundation is anchored. To become proudly rebellious, fight against the Lord's purposes, or judge his providence as unkind or unfair is to forfeit the sweet grace of his exaltation when the trial has fulfilled its purpose. Don't lose sight of that. There's a joy and there's a growth process when we walk through persecution. Christ is perfecting us. We're becoming more like him. So we don't grumble and complain at it. We rejoice in the fact that we're facing persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, are you humble? Are you submissive? Can you confidently proclaim along with the Apostle Paul when he stated in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Remember, God desires humility in his people. Our second discipline is hand over your anxiety to God in times of persecution. It's found in verse 7. Look back at it. It says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. You see, in Greek, anxieties, it means to be pulled in several different directions all at once. And that really is a vivid picture of, of what takes place in our lives when we start to worry. You see, when when believers are persecuted for their faith, then we hand over our anxieties to God as as we cast them upon Him. We give those burdens over to the Lord, which means that we stop worrying or bickering and complaining, and instead of that, we replace it with trusting in the Lord. And then we cast our burdens upon Him. And that word, cast... It is dependent on the main verb in verse 6, which is humble. So this is not a separate command that suddenly Peter is talking about. He's just reinforcing the commandment to be humble that he started in verse verse 6. You know, we always find out that God allows believers to undergo persecution for his predetermined plans and purposes and we need to be comforted by the fact that our heavenly father loves us and that he is sovereignly in control of our lives 
Philippians 4, 6, and 7 states, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But you need to remember that verse 7 does not take place until we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ adhere to what it says in verse 6. Look back at 6. Did did you notice how we're supposed to be praying? Does it say, pray with a heavy heart, pray disgruntfully, pray and say, why me, Lord? No. It says, pray how? With thanksgiving. And guess what? That's not a natural human response to suffering and persecution, is it? No, it's unnatural. However, that is the biblical response. That's what God requires of us. Trial, suffering, persecution. We rejoice in the Lord. We thank Him for it. And then the peace of God comes upon us. And we don't understand it. We don't get it. People on the outside look in and say, how can you be rejoicing in this? Oh, because my God is good. He gives me peace. You know, James, I mean, that is why he commands his readers to consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And part of those various trials indeed are persecution for your faith in the Lord when we exclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we as believers, we are to humbly submit to God and then we hand over our anxiety to him as we we cast our burdens upon him and say, Lord, I can't do this. If I do it in my own strength, I'm done. But you, you give me the strength and the ability to walk through this circumstance. Not for my glory, but for your glory. And we thank him for it and praise his name. And you know, when we do that, as we cast it upon him, that's what happens. It's that grace that's beyond all comprehension. It fills our hearts and our minds. And and then we can be an amazing testimony to other believers as well as a light to this dark and and dying world. They don't get it. Why in the world can you be acting like this when X, Y, and Z is taking place in your life? There's an amazing opportunity to present the gospel. And and you may be sitting here this morning and go, okay, let's get real, Pastor. Give me an example. Give me something to hold on to that that gives me an idea of, of someone that has faithfully presented the gospel and they were persecuted for it, and then they actually did that unnatural act and rejoiced. That's easy. You just go to the Bible. Go to Acts 4 and 5, you you look at the Apostle Peter and all the apostles. They were brought forth in front of the Sanhedrin with the the Sadducees because they were proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ all throughout Jerusalem. and, And they were brought before the council and they said, do not present the gospel. And they beat them. And they let them go. And they said, remember guys, don't. Use the name of Jesus Christ. Do not preach in his name. They let him go and 
What'd they do? Did they, did they go run and hide themselves in a closet and say, ah, I'm done? Away, they rejoiced. They went out rejoicing, saying, thank you, Lord, that I was deemed worthy to present the gospel for you and be persecuted for it. And then, not only that, it didn't stop there. It says, from every day in the temple, from place to place, home to home, they faithfully presented the gospel of Jesus Christ, unashamedly, come what may. They'd already been persecuted. They know what it felt to have a rod beat them on their back, but yet they faithfully presented the gospel. That is joy. That is the James 1-2 kind of attitude. And they were so joyful. So it's, it's, it's one of these things that that joy needs to be authentic and real. It's not just lip service. We don't get persecuted for our faith and then go, well, thank you, Lord. That was uh, not pleasant, but uh, hey, I did it. That's, that's not a heart attitude of saying, Lord, I'll do whatever it takes. And uh, like I said, if one more person gets to go to heaven, Amen. None of us deserve heaven, but he's so gracious that he extends the offer. And I'm going to open my mouth boldly for him. So we need to kind of change our perspective of how we look at persecution and, and not look at it as a liability, but we actually look at it as a privilege. Because during those times of persecution and suffering, we can actually have this opportunity to display our great love for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the world to see, to be that testimony and that light of how God is working in and through us for his providential plans. You know, Adoniram Judson, the renowned missionary to Burma, he endured untold hardships trying to reach the lost for Christ. And, and during this seven-year heartbreaking years, he suffered hunger and privation. And during that seven-year period, there was a 17-month stint that he was placed in Ava prison. And during that time, he was subjected to incredible mistreatment. So much so that the result of that mistreatment was these ugly scars that remained on his body for the rest of his life due to the chains and iron shackles which had cruelly bound him. So when he was released, you would think from a human perspective, you'd say, I'm done. You know what? I've been hungry, all these crazy things for seven years. The last 17 months I've been in prison. This has been brutal. I'm out. That's not what happened. I mean, he was undaunted. And so upon his release, he went to the leader of Burma and he asked for permission to continue doing his missionary work in just in another province of Burma. And the godless ruler of Burma indignantly denied his request. And these are the words that he told him. He said, my people are not fools enough to listen to anything a missionary might say, but I fear they might be impressed by your scars and turn to your religion. That was a man that at any cost said, bring it on. I am all in, Lord. Come what may, I'm your bond slave. 
I'm here for you, Lord. And we see that all throughout history. Faithful men and women persecuted for their faith, but instead of being deterred and going the other way, they keep fighting the battle, trusting in the Lord for their faith and their, and their peace and their comfort and their guidance. That's the God we serve today. So when we as believers face persecution for the Lord's sake, we need to realize that great is our reward in heaven. Now, we don't do it so that we can get a reward. That's just the benefit of it. We present the gospel, come what may, because we love the Lord and he saved us and, and we want him to save others. That should be a passion. Anybody that's saved in here, that should be your passion. That's why you're left on earth. Because if, if God was done with you, guess what? You'd be in heaven. But you're still here. You got a purpose. We need to be presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that we, we actively seek out persecution for persecution's sake. I'm just saying as we faithfully live out our life of Christ for the world to see, when persecution does come, we rejoice in it because God will be glorified. We give him the praise. But why? Why does the Bible say here, why did Peter write that we are to, to hand over our anxieties and cast them upon the Lord? We'll look back at the second half of verse 7. It says, because he cares for you. You see, we have a loving Heavenly Father that has our best interest at heart. He knows your concerns. He knows your weaknesses. He knows what you're thinking before you even think it. And so Peter here, he, he's quoting from Psalm 55, 22, where it states, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Isn't that beautiful? God cares for you. See, he's not a God of, of indifference. No, quite the, the contrary. You see, as a matter of fact, one of the distinguishing treasures of Christianity that we inherited from Judaism is the fact that God is known to be concerned with the personal care of his people. You see, other religions at best think God is aloof. They may claim that he's perfect, yeah, but, but they still say he's off over here and he just leaves you to your own devices. He doesn't personally get involved in your life. You see, God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But the glorious truth that shines forth in Scripture is the fact that the God of the universe who created you and gave you life, he wants and desires to have a personal relationship with you if you are his child. You ever thought about that? Your creator who gave you life, he wants to have a relationship with you. Question is, do you want to have a relationship with him? See, he's on our side and he has our best interests at heart because we're his children. 
And in verse 7, it indicates that the care and concern for believers, it's not a one-time thing. God doesn't just save us and then leave. No, his care and concern is ongoing and never ending. It goes on and on and on. He cares for us. See, God, he doesn't turn a blind eye to, to a believer's suffering. Never. Rather, what he wants to do is in our suffering and in times of persecution, he wants us to grow in our faith in him, to trust in him, and to actively be humble and submit to him and trust in him that he knows what's best, and that he will give us that peace to walk through it. So in times of persecution, you need to humble yourself before God, you need to hand over your anxiety to God, you also need to hold out against the devil in times of persecution. That's our third principle. It's found in verses 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You know, a supporting idea for these verses could be that if you don't hand over your anxieties, if you're not casting them upon the Lord, then Satan, he may gain an advantage over you. Therefore, be alert, be on guard, stand firm against the devil, resist him, and after God has allowed you to suffer for a time, he will exalt you. C.S. Lewis once wrote that two mistakes Christians make when they are talking about Satan are that they either joke about him or they ignore him. But you look back at verse 8 and you see that neither one of those is an option. That's why Peter commanded his readers to be of sober spirit and to be on the alert. He's not playing around. We have an adversary that's against us. So we don't overemphasize the power of Satan. We don't go huddle in a corner and say, ah, Satan's going to get me. But at the same time, we also don't just go, ah, Satan can't do anything to me, forget it, and put our guard down. We don't do either of those. Instead, we, we as believers, we need to be watchful, like observant sentinels, aware that at any moment, at any sector, we could be attacked by the enemy. So even though we can't physically see Satan, we realize through Scripture that he is our adversary and he's always looking for a way to penetrate the army of God to somehow find a weakness and, and tear us down. So Peter, that's why he, he describes Satan as a roaring lion. I mean, what a great simile chosen by Peter because of the brute's nature as a cruel and, and ferocious beast of prey. The goal of Satan is to prowl around and find someone to devour. And that word devour, I mean, it's, it's very graphic. It means to drink down. So think of, of a beast of prey just gulping down in one gulp their prey. I mean, think about it for a moment. If you went home tonight and you watched the news at 6 o'clock and you found out that 
a huge lion from the local zoo had escaped, and he's known to be in your neighborhood. Is that the time that you think you'd go, hey, man, let's, I, I haven't got a lot of exercise lately. I think I'm going to go out for a quiet little stroll and see what happens. That would be ridiculous. Are you kidding me? That's the time that I have the door shut, and I'd be, ooh, I, I might peek out the window because I think that might be cool to see that, but are you kidding me? That lion, I mean, it's going to devour you. And that is the illustration. That's the simile that Peter uses describing Satan as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But we have Christ. He has overcome the world. He's overcome Satan. So when we're persecuted for our faith, we trust in the Lord. Christians are to be clear-minded and attentively looking out for clear and present spiritual danger. And Peter knew that oh so well. Because Peter, I mean, he he knew what he was talking about because he failed to heed Christ's warning when Christ stated in Matthew 26, 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Peter, he's calling his readers to be wakefully active, morally and spiritually, and to be on the alert against the assaults of sin and Satan. So what are we to do as believers? We're to do what Peter told us to do in verse 9. He says to resist the devil and stand firm in our faith. James says something very similar to that in James 4, 7. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So you you need to make a distinction here. Scripture, it warns believers to flee from temptation, but it never tells us to flee from Satan. What it tells us to do is resist Satan, to stand firm in our faith, never compromising the word of God. We take a firm stance and we resist Satan. You see, victory, it's not assured by clinging to our own personal beliefs. Rather, we cling to the cross and what Christ has already accomplished on our behalf. He's already defeated Satan. And so we are thankful for that, and we live victorious lives through Christ. And then Peter, he ends verse 9 with giving assurance to his readers that as they are persevering humbly, submissively, and firmly in the midst of their persecution, they're not suffering alone. You ever thought about that? You ever think that, man, I'm, I'm being persecuted for my faith, and I bet no one in the world has ever been persecuted like this before. I'm here to tell you, yeah, they have. And that's what's going on here. Peter wants to give them assurance. You're not the only one that is going under this type of persecution. It's happening throughout the world. He reminds him, he says, the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 
And that word world here, he's not referring in this instance to the world and realm of evil that's opposed to God's word. Rather, he's referring to the physical Roman Greco world. So believers here in Asia Minor, he's going, I get it. You're being persecuted for your faith, but you're not alone. There's other believers throughout the world that are undergoing this type of persecution as well. Stand firm, resist the devil, move forward, press on. God is your salvation. So we as believers must understand and come to grips with the fact that God is in control and he allows this form of of persecution in our lives to accomplish his perfect work in our lives. Just chiseling away anything that needs to be chiseled away so we become more like Christ. And we do it all for the glory of God. So you humble yourself before God, you hand over your anxiety before God, and you hold out against the devil. This brings us to our fourth and final discipline, which is hope in Christ in times of persecution. Verse 10 and 11. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we see that Peter, he starts this verse, he's allowing his readers to to know that their present suffering, it's only temporary. He's saying that, that, you know what, no matter how difficult your circumstances may be, one day in the future, God will exalt you from this persecution. But it also brings with it the connotation that even if that persecution lasted their entire life, it still pales in comparison to the fact that they one day will live with Christ forever. Paul kind of touches on that in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. He says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So that means that we press on in times of persecution, knowing that the God of the universe is directing each and every one of our steps. And then Peter, he moves on into verse 10 to describe God as the God of all grace. And it's only here in the New Testament that God is referred to by that title. And commentator D. Edmund Hebert, he said this, Of all grace characterizes him as the source and giver of all grace. All the undeserved favor bestowed upon us in our unworthiness. Having proved himself rich in his bestowal of grace in the past, Christians can rest assured that God will supply all their present needs. As I stated earlier, God is not a God of indifference, but he cares for his children and he has their best interest at heart. And we can see that principle just expressed and illustrated even more in the next phrase of verse 10 where Peter proclaimed, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. I mean, that phrase right there, it just further characterizes God because it shows the grace by which he has given us. He's lavished on us undeserving sinners. 
So we see that God, he effectually, effectively calls his own into his kingdom and service. At the moment that he draws you to his son and you hear the message and you receive it and you are saved. And that is when the gospel message just takes root in your heart and you trust in the Lord. And Peter's readers, they had been called by God, which meant that they no longer are to be dwelling on their past sins, but instead their gaze is now to the future of their hope, the glory that they will have in Christ. You see, they had, just like us, they have obtained an inheritance in heaven that's imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. So God, he will personally use the suffering of his children to mold them into the image of his son. And Peter, he, he succinctly described the promise of that earthly, transforming, sanctifying process of maturing in Christ by using four nearly synonymous words at the end of verse 10. Look at it, it says perfect. That means to, to bring to wholeness. It says confirm, it's to set fast. Strengthen, it's to make sturdy. Establish, it's to lay a foundation. So all of those words, they imply strength and immovability, which God desires for all believers to possess as they face persecution in their life. So we know that God, he he places believers firmly on his word where they stand in faith and confidence until that final glory is realized. And then Peter, how does he end this little section here? He does none other than end with a mini doxology, giving praise and, and glory to God. I mean, that's the only appropriate response that Peter could use as he's describing the restorative and strengthening power of God by celebrating this grace and praise to him. So these persecuted believers in Asia Minor, they could take comfort knowing that God was in control and that at a future day they would spend eternity with him. Therefore, they were to worship the God of all grace even in the midst of their current persecution. And you know what? By God's grace, that's what we are to be doing today. When we face persecution We don't just run the other way, but we keep moving forward in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And we let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works so that they bring praise and honor to God. Not to us, but to God. So what a beautiful passage this is when we think about persecution and when it comes in our lives. We go back here and we see that it's the God of all grace that takes care of us. So Peter, in this passage, he's taught us four disciplines to stand firm in persecution. Humble yourself before God. Hand over your anxiety to God. Hold out against the devil. And hope in Christ. And if you are here this morning and you're a believer and and you incorporate these four disciplines into your life, then you too, at any time, when you are going through trials and tribulations and persecution and suffering in this life, you can still have peace in God. So, what's our takeaway from this passage? 
It's this. Life's messy. You know, we'd love to have it wrapped in this beautiful package with a bow on top and say, here you go, no persecution, no suffering, no pain. That's not what happened. We experienced all those things. Life is very messy. But we have to firmly remain steadfast in our faith in the Lord, trusting in His power, not our power. So it really boils down to, you need to ask yourself this question. Do you or do you not believe in the sovereignty of God? That's a question you always have to wrestle with. The Bible is very clear. God is sovereign over everything, including our persecution. And when we know that, there is a comfort and a peace saying, I don't like this, but it's for my good and his glory. I'm not going to get in the way. Okay, Lord, do what you need to do to perfect me for your kingdom purposes. We press on in our faith in the Lord and, and we endure. And we don't just endure, like I said earlier, with a grumbling, complaining attitude. We endure joyfully, giving our praise to God Almighty. You know, do you remember as a kid, those connect the dot puzzles. You'd go out to, to eat with your parents and then the back of a Denny's menu, they would have these dots and you're looking at it going, I don't know what it is. You just you know, you start connecting one, two, three, four. Next thing you know, at the end, you're, you're done and there's this picture of a, of a butterfly or a boat or a, or a dog that you could not see at the beginning. Well, even though you may not be able to see the big picture in your life, as you're going through persecution for the Lord, God sees the end from the beginning and he connects the dots for you because he is the one who has given you grace in salvation and he's leading you to final glory, to his praise. So resting in the sovereignty of God makes life way more bearable. It doesn't take the persecution and suffering away. It makes it bearable because we cast our burdens upon the Lord. So being persecuted for your faith, it's, it's not fun, but when you joyfully accept it in our suffering, great is our reward in the life to come. You know, the first half of Psalm 55, 22, I read it earlier. It says, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. I close with this. J.R. Miller had this to say about the promise stated in that verse. The promise is not that the Lord will remove the load we cast upon him, nor that he will carry it for us, but that he will sustain us so that we may carry it. He does not free us from the duty, but he strengthens us for it. He does not deliver us from the conflict, but he enables us to overcome he does not withhold or withdraw the trial from us, but he helps us in trial to be submissive and victorious and makes it a blessing to us. He does not mitigate the hardness or severity of our circumstances, taking away the difficult elements, removing the thorns, making life easy for us, but he puts divine grace into our hearts so that we can live sweetly in all the hard, adverse circumstances. 
That's a beautiful statement right there. It's because God is the God of all grace and he will sustain us through persecution. So we as believers, we remain steadfast in our alliance upon him and then he gives us strength to endure. So have hope. Endure joyfully and trust in the Lord. Stand firm in the grace revealed in Scripture because final glory will come soon. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word, that even though there will be times in our lives that we will be persecuted for our faith, we know that you are in control and you care for us and that we can hand over our anxieties to you as we humbly submit to you and we resist Satan and we hope in Christ and our burdens are lifted from us. And so, Lord, we pray today that we will be faithful ambassadors of your word, that you will bring people, even today, our way that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and start those conversations for us, Lord, for your glory, for your peace, purposes so that one more person can be saved for your glory we pray in Jesus name amen